All right, well, let's, uh, let's work through this text together uh, as we consider Job's very searching words. We've recently finished the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount ended with an illustration about a rock um, and on a picture of where we live if we live our lives based on that rock, and that rock is Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And so we felt thought of that in light of eternity, but we could also think of that in light of life. We could think of that in light of life and eternity. And that's what we're encouraged to do today with Job. Um, I wonder how many of you uh, have gone through a shaking of your faith uh, through your circumstances recently. Uh, Perhaps a rocking of the rock on which you stand. Um, Well, we find today footing in life and death's struggles through Christ as our Redeemer. We find, as Job, footing in life and death Uh, through Christ as our Redeemer. Uh, These circumstances are waves, sometimes small waves, sometimes tidal waves that would sink any ship. They're they're things that are out of our control, like an ocean is a a storm is out of control. Uh, They're crashing upon our shore uh, that that end up being more like an earthquake. Uh, The ground itself becomes a wave crumbling underneath our feet, Um, huge waves of earth, aftershocks, you you, uh, survive the one and the plates shake below again and there is another crashing around you and you find or you try to find some firm stand amid all around you losing their firm footing and at times blaming it on you, as the poem goes. And so if we're not careful, if we do not have a solid foundation, a rock on which to stand, we will topple, we will shake, we will be fearful, and we won't be an example of steadfastness, but we'll be an example of the foolish who built their life on something other than the rock. Um, So today we're going to be encouraged again to find footing in Christ and his cross. The redemption that comes through Christ and his cross. And this is amazing that we find this example from whom in our text today? Job. How can Job find footing at the cross? How does that work, Job? Um, I love these passages. This is going to do a brief series on this. None of you can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. None of you can. We have no clue, much less what's going to happen in 2035. How many of you know who's going to be president in 2035? You don't know who's going to be president tomorrow, right? We really don't know any of these things about the future. What is truly supernatural about this book in front of you is that there are things that are written thousands of years ago with exactness that play out like a history book. And I want us to uncover just three or four of these that so clearly point to Jesus 
that they're amazing, they're astounding. But as they point to Jesus, they find in them, these Old Testament saints, firm footing. And that's what we want to do as well. Uh, So we'll look at the future with Job, at these amazing things, uh, and find footing at the cross. And you know the Bible is like this, right? You you hear this said, the, the Old Testament points to the cross, right? And so the Old Testament, we see Christ... Uh, he's, he's foretold, right? Um, and then the New Testament looks back to the cross, right? We see um, them, them preaching the cross of Christ. And, and so we, we open our Bibles in that way. But as we open to Job, we open to one of the earliest accounts in your scriptures. Um, I wanted to handle some of the Genesis ones, but we've handled them pretty recently. Um, and so we're not, we're not going to. In fact, we're doing one of them in, in, in our Genesis class. Uh, but but uh, if you look at Job, he probably lived during the time of Abraham. Uh, so those of you who are doing your re- through the Bible in a year, some of you do the chronological Bible. Right? I know Sarah's doing that right now. Uh, Diana Lee does that every year, and, and maybe you've done that. I think my mom does that every year. Um, but there's this really neat uh, process of thinking when these events occurred. And as we open a book, open our Bibles to Job, we're opening it to a, a bookshelf that is poetry, right? You have a bookshelf in the Old Testament that's history, a bookshelf that's the law, Pentateuch, and there's a bookshelf that's poetry, and so you find it near the Psalms, right? Job's Psalms. That's kind of toward the middle, but actually the events occurred probably all the way back in Genesis. So we're finding someone who lived long before Jesus, thousands of years before Jesus, And yet we find the cross. We find the cross. And this is just amazing. Uh, But Jesus said this. Uh, He he confronted those on the Maas Road as foolish. Because they did not build their life on the rock, which is Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Then beginning with whom? With Moses. And all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself and all of scriptures. And so we're going to do a little series here on uh, the, the walking of the Messiah through the Old Testament. Seeing Christ in the Tanakh. And uh, we could do this for like the next 20 years. But we're not going to. I'm just going to look at some of the ones that are maybe a little less known. And uh, so that's why we're doing this one in Job. Okay, so let's look at Job. I'm not going to go through all of this. Uh, this, we recently, not recently, I think within the last six months or so, in our series on through uh, a look at one book, we looked at the book of Job. And so I'm not going to recover all of this. I do have some of these. If, if you want one of these, this is the content outline for the book of Job. Um, we, we find a fascinating story in the book of Job. It's really three conversations, as you see here. Chapters 1 and 2 is this conversation between God and Satan as they discuss Job's downfall. And then you have a conversation that's really uncomfortable, isn't it? What is the conversation that comes up next for the big, biggest chunk of the book? It's between Job and his miserable friends. Miserable companions are you all, right? It's like, enough already with these friends. I need enemies. 
And, and so they're just lashing out at Job repeatedly through all these chapters. And it goes back and forth between Job and Eliphaz, Job and Elihu, Job and Bildad. Elihu comes actually later. But our chapter comes right in the middle of all of that, toward the end actually of the discussions back and forth, before the final retort of Bildad. Job comes out here and says, I wish I could bring my case to God. Because you friends are not doing anything about listening to me. And so that's where we find this, in this poem, uh, in this poem we find this beautiful affirmation of faith in a future Redeemer. Alright, so that's what we're going to kind of uncover. And in this, we're really only going to look at a, a couple verses. Because we just only have the time for a couple verses. But I encourage you to read it. Uh, read the book of Job and uh, maybe uh, look at some studies on that. Verse 24, we're not going to get into in a great detail, but there's this appeal in verse 24 for a preserved witness. What we are going to delve into is this assurance, an assurance in verse 25 that there's a life beyond death as Job looks at his Redeemer. And then thirdly, we'll just end with just a minute of verses 27 to 29, a caution, a caution about future judgment toward his friends, okay? So we're going to mainly spend time with that middle uh, point there in your outline and assurance and just look at the words and let Jesus speak to us from them. First of all, an appeal. Job is like, you guys aren't listening to me. And he gets frustrated. Actually, this is in the tone of frustration as he says these things in verses 23 and 24. You see that with the exclamation points. How many exclamation points? Three. Now, they're not in the Hebrew, but this is our authors trying to pick up the tone, our translators trying to pick up the tone of Job as he's just like, enough already with the complaining about me, right? Oh, man, if I just had the opportunity to write my complaint in a book, because you guys aren't listening to me, and, and I just want to write these words in a book. And so he, he asks for chisel and stone. Uh, as Job wants to find a lasting memorial for his complaint. Um, not just a parchment, not just paper. He just wants someone, give me a rock and give me an iron pen and take these words down because I want them commemorated forever because no doubt my buddies here are not going to remember them. They're not going to record my side of this argument. God, it doesn't seem, is even listening to me. So I just want somehow to memorialize my words. Um, it is so precious, isn't it, that God hears our prayers of frustration? What do we have in front of us? We have the answer to Job's prayer. Even the prayer of a frustrated, uh, lacking in patience person. Um, we find the most indestructible of rocks engraven upon them the words of our precious friend Job and God says I hear you Job Jesus says I hear you and the rock himself who is the word of God will actually be pierced with iron stylus to bring about these words and that will be the rock who claims to say, who says and fulfills his word, not one jot, not one cross of a T, not one dot of an I is going to pass away from Job's words until all of it's fulfilled. 
And that word himself will be the answer to his prayer. Beautiful, beautiful what the Lord is showing us here. But he's saying it in grief. Oh, what can I do? What can I do? God isn't listening to my friends or kids. My wife is telling me to curse God. He's in despair, disbelief. Lord, give me stone in which to etch this. What words would he go to next? What words would you go to? What words would you etch in stone after really unjustly having everything that you own taken away and left with misery and grief, longing for death? What would you write? We find in that setting the, the, one of the most beautiful affirmations of faith and trust in God in your whole Bible. Isn't that amazing? We find someone who looks beyond himself and speaks prophetically in ways that are beyond our understanding as he declares his assurance. And so we find from this appeal to this assurance, there is life beyond death. He's like, I don't care what you guys say. I don't care what anyone says. As for me. And he gives this affirmation. Look at the statement of his assurance. The statement of his assurance is emphatic. Verse 25. As for me, I know. Right? There is an emphatic emphasis on his personal profession of faith being made public here. You guys can say whatever you want about my faith and my walk with God. But as for me, I know what's going on in my heart. You can judge me all you please. But as for me, I know this to be true. And so there's this emphatic nature of what Job is going through. Why? Because, because of this. Look at the cause of his assurance. How can you be so assured, Job? I mean, look at your life. It's a shambles. This is how. The cause of assurance is a person. It's a person. And so let's look at this person a little bit. As for me, and just kind of delve into these words, as for me, I know, and then he's going to talk about this person. Look at the position of this person. This person's position is that of a redeemer. A redeemer, the theme of our service. And the reason why we can find footing today, as Job did, no matter what our circumstances around us in life or death. Look at the position of this person as redeemer. This comes straight from the, uh, the law of Leviticus. Right? The idea would have been translated perhaps by the time at least of the writing uh, to be someone as, a, um, as what Israel referred to God as a redeemer in this way. But it came from this illustration uh, from Leviticus. Uh, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property. What does that remind you of? Right, Monopoly, if you've played Monopoly. Um, comes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, so recovers his means and is fine sufficient for its redemption. So, so this is you going out of business in Monopoly, you turn the deed over, and you, you lay your head until you finally go bankrupt. Um, this was God's way for... Israel to have some sort of social uh, taking care of those who are poor. 
And, and so this is the way they did it. If you, you had to sell everything you owned, you sell everything you owned, and eventually you sold yourself. Uh, but someone in your family was to come and buy you back and enable you to have property, enable you to have a part of God's blessed land. And so then he shall calculate the year since its sale and refund the balance to the man whom he sold it. And so return, redeem, buy back that property, buy back that which was someone else's because of a mismanagement or difficulty in life or whatever brought it about. We find this in our culture also through a pawn shop, right? Let's say you come across hard times, and of course all of you have two or three Rolexes, and so you're like, you know what, I don't need three, so I'm going to take two of them to the pawn shop, they're giving me $1,000, and they're going to sit them in hock, and then when I'm able to make this money back, I can go and buy it back. But if I don't, in the meantime, someone else can buy it. All right, so this is what a pawn shop is. If you are able to go back and buy it, you are redeeming it. You're bringing it back to yourself. This is the idea of redemption. But specifically in that context, it was someone coming in and saving the day. The focus is a person in your family, a person, a friend, who comes and says, I'm going to take all their debt. Maybe they mismanaged their funds. Maybe they, something happened like Job where they're not able to take care of themselves. And I'm going to come in and take care of all of his legal obligations, all of his debt. And you're going to put that on my account. And I'm going to buy them back out of slavery. I'm going to buy their property back for themselves. And so this is the idea of Redeemer. The idea of redemption. If we could just let that sit in for a second and remember that we're sitting in a circle with Job has nothing. His wealthiest friends come. What could they be doing? They could be taking care of him financially. Isn't that interesting? But to this point, they're just saying, Job, you're doing this because of sin. Repent because of your sin. Repent because of your sin. Job's saying, that's not the problem, guys. And, and so there may be some play on this. Where he's like, listen guys, I don't need your money. I don't need you to take care of me. I have a redeemer. I have a hero. External circumstances notwithstanding. Because if you look at everything on the surface, Job is in, a, is in bad shape. But he says here, from the position of the person to the possession of the person. My Redeemer, I do have a close, personal friend who is going to stand up for me. And, and that just lets everything melt. I don't understand what's going on. I'm at a loss. I'm distressed. I'm in pain. I'm in agony. But my Redeemer, I have one. It's none of you crazy friends who've come to berate me. But I have a Redeemer. I know I have a Redeemer. And sure isn't Bildad, it sure isn't Elihu, but I have my Redeemer. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And so we find Job in his squalor, his filth, his bankrupt position, left with nothing but debts. These wealthy men come to gloat and pour guilt on him. And what Job, what does he do? I have a rescuer. 
I have a helper. I have a hero. I have one who is living. Write it down with iron stylus. I know my Redeemer lives. There's so many of these things to be assured of in our own lives. Even in a physical sense, do you know that you have a Redeemer? You have one who is stronger than Boaz. You remember Boaz? Boaz was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. They had nothing. They were destitute. They were poor. And all of a sudden, this family member comes along and leaves handfuls of purpose, taking care of their need of wheat. We have this. You have this. Your kinsman redeemer leaves the wheat that you need. Do you need wheat today? Do you need bread for tomorrow? I don't know everybody's circumstances. Maybe you would say, I need bread for tomorrow. Maybe you would say, this difficulty is not that of a financial nature, but it goes deeper than that. There is this emotional strain. There is this relationship strain. Do you recognize that you have a redeemer who took care of all of Job's problems? And even in the problem, Job was able to say, but I know I have him. I have a Redeemer who lives. I have a a hero. And even in the earthquake, you can still find footing in life and death struggles through Christ as your Redeemer. His redemption is your rock. The fact that you can come even with nothing but disease and bankruptcy and death and say, I still stand because I have a Redeemer who lives today. We find real footing in that. Your Redeemer not only gives handfuls of purpose, He owns all the fields. And He uses these fields to feed all the birds. This is how wealthy your best of friends is. This is how He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, and you can bring any of your needs to Him in a physical sense. But with Job, his eyes, let's, we have to move on because his eyes went way beyond that. And he prophesied something even much more deep. Not only is he not needing these friends who came around him to redeem him, to be his kinsman redeemer, to take care of his needs, as God did. But what if God doesn't in this life? He still does it beyond this life. And that is much deeper still. And that's where his eyes go. I know my Redeemer lives, but look at the power of this person. What will he do? Question one. And when will he do it? I know that my kinsman Redeemer lives today. Um, I know he's here with me. And Job's like, I don't understand everything going on, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. All right. Two questions. What is he going to do and when? Right? Look at his power. At the last, he will take his stand on the earth. When is it? At the last. He's living then and he's going to take care of Job. But first of all, what is he going to do? What is he going to do there? What's the word? He's going to take his stand on the earth. He is going to take his stand on the earth. This is, I don't want to make too much out of this. Um, 
But, but this is the word, and it doesn't come across in English as well, but it is the word to raise up. It is the word that has reference to someone who has been struck down or fallen asleep, and they, and they raise up from laying down. And I think this is, this is the Holy Spirit preaching the resurrection, because it's all tied to life and death. I have a kinsman redeemer who lives... And yet he will rise up. This is the one who will... And that's it's just one word. He will rise up. It has nothing to do with taking his stand. Like you talk, it doesn't talk about feet. He is going to... Up from the grave he arose. And it actually refers to someone struck. And, and getting up from being struck. I know my kinsman redeemer lives. And he is going to rise up. And stand on the earth. Jesus himself is our Redeemer who will rise up, and it is his rising up from the grave that gives us all the hope in the world. There is no redemption if Jesus doesn't rise up. And that's why every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, because Jesus, our Redeemer, has conquered death. What all of our anxieties and difficulties in life come from that death and sin from the curse Jesus has conquered all that. Right? No difficulty that we face is not tied to that original fall. And Jesus has conquered all of that fall. And so he looks forward not just to his blessing of Job 42, and we all want Job 42 in our lives, especially when we're going through difficulty, but he looks beyond that. He looks beyond that to the end. He looks back to the last page of history and he finds a redeemer, his redeemer who is living with him, who will rise up one day and will stand on the earth at the end. This is our rock. This is Jesus on whom we find sure footing who is forever Messiah. And I would say this, it becomes even more clear as we look at verse 25 when we find the content of his assurance. This is why I say he's talking all about resurrection. Um, He's saying, listen, and and Job maybe is thinking, listen, I'm going to die. I realize that. Um, And it may be today, it may be tomorrow, but I'm going to die. And he just says, that doesn't move me. My assurance is beyond this life. And so the Redeemer who gives you strength for life's difficulties gives you strength for death's difficulties. Verses 26 and 27 move into eternal future. Even when? After my life is destroyed. Even after this skin of mine is destroyed. And and he's talking about decomposing in the grave. Right After the worms eat his body and he's dust. That is when he is going to live. Amazing affirmation of faith. This is the New New Testament truths. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I realize he didn't see all of that as clearly as we do. But he does see a Redeemer who is going to give him eternal life, who is going to rise up one day and stand on the earth at the very end of all things. After this life, after my earthly life is destroyed, there is a continuing to live. And this is the amazing thing. He says, at that point, and this is why I say this is Jesus, 
At that point, after my skin is destroyed, what will he see? He will see deity. He will see deity. How is that going to happen? The only way that is going to happen is if deity himself takes upon a visible form. And that is what Jesus does. Jesus, Son of God, garbs himself in human flesh, eternally the Son, but taking upon himself in incarnation, a flesh, a carne. And so he says, after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. And he doesn't just say this once and he's like, Tim, that's a stretch. No, he says it three times. From my flesh I shall see God. Again, emphatic, whom I myself shall behold. A third time, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. He's like, you didn't get it once, you didn't get it twice. I'm I'm speaking literally here. My eyes are going to see God. The Holy Spirit is teaching us Christology here from Job, one of the earliest uh, records of history. You have Jesus as Redeemer, who is God himself who is living at the time of Job, but he's going to take on flesh. That flesh is going to be pierced through as a rock. And he himself is going to be raised up and stand at the end of time. And he's going to be the Redeemer who all all who trust in his name. And And he gives to us the privilege of seeing him, of looking at this holy God, gazing at his glory. And so we find the opportunity for humanity to go back in the garden and walk with Jesus. Back in the garden to walk with Messiah. We find him walking in the garden. We find him walking with Abraham. We find him walking with Moses. And we find him here in, in, a, in a shadow walking with Job. And so he cautions his friends in closing. He's like, listen, I know what's okay with me. It's you who need to take stock. And so he, he says, my, my heart's fainting within me. Um, he's ready to die. He's ready to go and see his Redeemer. If you say, how shall we persecute him? Like he said, listen, you're trying to persecute me. You're, you're trying to bring a case against me. Just be careful. Because in that end day, when my Redeemer stands on the earth, he's going to judge you. Now, thankfully, you read Job 42, God judges through Job's words before the grave. But he's just going to caution them about a future judgment. Uh, He's like, I'm ready to die. Um, My Redeemer's going to come and take me home. And I know at the very end of all things, when time is done, I'm going to stand with my Redeemer on the earth. And he's going to judge you. So, So you guys, be careful what you say in bringing your case against me. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne... Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. This is your Redeemer. This is how strong your Redeemer is. I saw the dead, Job and his friends, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And they were judged according to their works in the book of life. Those who were not found, verse 14, in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
If any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what Job is talking about. This is this he's seeing revelation. One of the earliest occurrences in your Bible, and yet he's he's telling us about revelation. The last one of the last chapters in your Bible. Be sharing more about that tonight on our radio program, WMCA, at 6 p.m. If you want to tune in there with uh, Heritage of Faith, be talking about the the great white throne. Uh, But he reminds us to be ready for that judgment to come. Um, You can find footing in death through Christ as your Redeemer today. You can find footing in life through the struggles of life in Christ as your kinsman Redeemer today. I want to close with a song uh, and, and the story of song. I'm going to read this just for a minute. Give me a moment. I'm going to read this a couple pages that will encourage you to find your hope in Christ uh, when your life is falling apart around you. And then we're going to close with that song, There is a Redeemer. And I want to change us, change the words to sing, uh, I have a Redeemer. So we can, like Job, affirm these truths for ourselves. Not just nebulously, there's Christ out there, and I believe that he died on the cross. I want us all to personalize that and say, I have a Redeemer. We're going to sing that in just a moment. Let me share you the words of this man. This is in the 1800s, the late 1800s in China. In a very difficult time, I don't know if this is the most difficult time as far as recorded history in China, um, but this was uh, a, a famine in which, in this province in which Song lived, 75% of the people died of famine. With varying good fortune, he struggled on and was able to support his wife and children, but there were little brightness in his life, for his health was poor, his wife had very bad temper. His son and daughter-in-law were a comfort, but it was a little girl, strange to say, to whom most of his heart seemed to cling. During all those years of middle life, Song was much occupied with thoughts about the future. Not the future like Job and his friends were talking about, and, but where Job goes in Job 19. He longed to penetrate to the future beyond the grave, its mysteries, to know what none could tell him. And yet he felt he must discover. All religious works within his reach, he persistently searched in hope of finding light. He read Buddha's tracts, Taoist books, put their teaching into practice as far as he was able. He chanted prayers, gave himself to meditation and fasting. For 25 years, he kept a vow never to touch animal food and hoped that he might purify his heart and win an entrance into the halls of heaven. His wife became a devout Buddhist and was ever repeating incantations and prayers. He says, but her temper seemed none the better for the process. Then came the famine. In common with all his neighbors, Song suffered what words can never tell. More fortunate than most, he was able to keep body and soul together and preserve his family from being scattered. During the first year of the famine, he noticed a boy reading a foreign-looking book, borrowed it from him. It was a strange book. It was Matthew's Gospel. He could not take much out of it, but it contained the story of one Jesus that fascinated his attention. What filled him with wonder was that such a good man should come to such a terrible end. He couldn't understand this. As he read the story of the cross, he was unable to restrain his tears. His whole heart went out in love to Jesus. But he had no idea that the man upon the cross had anything to do with him or his suffering. 
Gradually, the famine grew worse until an awful climax was reached in the spring of 1878. Song turned with anxiety, did everything that he could be done to keep the wolf from his door. Fever raged as well as famine, and at last death entered his home. His son's young wife was taken. Immediately after, his cherished daughter also was stricken and lay down to die. Nothing could save her. The heart was broken. Man knelt by her side in silence as he rapidly drifted out. Father, said the dying girl, Father, where am I going? What lies before me in darkness? I'm frightened. Help me, help me. My little girl, grown the stricken man, I cannot tell. Imagine this. There are other lives beyond, though the body decays in the grave, but, Father, are they happy lives? Tell me, help me. He knew nothing more. Not even his love for his dying child could pierce this lack, this mystery, this terror. In the darkness, the slender fingers tightened upon her father's hand till they grew cold in death. Bowed in anguish in his empty home, the sorrowing man heard the approach of a stranger. His heart is calling out for more message about this. Looking up in his grief, standing beside him is a man's face of love. He knows him to be a doer of good deeds, an Englishman, Lee. Mr. Song, he said, I've come to ask you to do me a favor. This is, this is amazing. There is a child here, a little girl, cast out by her parents to starve. You and your wife are related to them in some way. I can't take the child because I'm unmarried. Will you give her a home for me? I will meet all of her expenses. The kind eyes and manner found their way straight to the father's heart. And soon David Hill was sitting beside Song in his desolation, hearing the story of his sufferings, double bereavement, help and comfort were generously given. Another home was saved. Just about this time, Song happened to look over a copy of a treaty between China and Western powers after the Second World War, and he was surprised at how European nations seemed to date their years by the same Jesus who died upon a cross 18 centuries ago. This seemed him most singular, and he wished more than ever to understand this teaching about Jesus. But he didn't know anyone to go to. He was greatly troubled. After this, he went one day to see Mr. Hill about the child that he had taken into his home and was delighted to find out that Mr. Hill himself was a believer in Jesus and had come to China on the purpose to teach this doctrine to others. Song found in Jesus a redeemer, a savior. His wife gradually came to see the truth and beauty of her husband's faith. Old things passed away. All things became new. She became gentle and kind, happy. And then they had deepest of fellowship. He continues on in his life, giving himself to this Redeemer, sharing this Redeemer with others. But finding hope, finding hope in uh, a story of one through which we, we date our, our calendar, 19, 2000, 2035, we don't know what will happen. 
We don't know what our life will be like. But you know what? We will know that it's 2,035 years since our Redeemer lived and died and rose again as a rock in which we can find footing in life and in death. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I hope you have this as your Redeemer. I think this message that Job gives is for everyone. I realize that, that it's primarily an evangelistic message that Job gives, but you know what? He, he believed. <laughs> and, and so perhaps you're just feeling like, I have this, the tectonic plates are just really, really moving, and I feel like I'm in an earthquake. Well, I hope you would right now say, Jesus, you're my kinsman redeemer, you're my Boaz, and I just cast myself upon you, and I once again find footing in you, my redeemer. Would you do that now? Perhaps you're, you're listening to this, or you're here and hearing this for the first time, and you would say, I've never really trusted in Jesus in this saving way as Song did. And I've come through some rough times, and I've recognized that, that I have no hope beyond the grave. If, if my daughter were to be dying in front of me, I would not know what to tell her. Well, Jesus is your Redeemer. He wants to be your Redeemer, and I would encourage you to trust in Him. Find in Him this affirmation. He has walked before you. The Calvary Road has died in your place, buried in a rock, pierced through for our transgressions, bearing your iniquity, that He might buy you back from sin, the slave market of sin. And and he appeals to you right now to ask him for that. Would you ask him, would you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Be redeemed? Say, Lord, I cannot by myself. Please redeem me. Please save me because of Jesus. And he'll do so. So let's all pray right now. In this quiet, I'll be standing in the back. Be happy to pray with you. In a moment, Pastor Andrew will close us. And we're going to sing that song together. Singing Christ is my Redeemer. But it would be good for you to know that. So let's all come to him in prayer and in praise as we close. If you would like to pray with someone, I'll be standing in the back. Be happy to pray with you. Let's pray.